0: That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you
1: there. Did you know that students get it free? The Irish Times offers a free digital subscription to all full-time undergraduates. Keep up to date for free with quality journalism and reporting. Claim yours today at irishtimes.com slash subscribe slash student. Hello there and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Kevin Rafter has had a long career as a political journalist with, among others, the Irish Times, the Sunday Times, the Sunday Tribune, McGill Magazine and RTE. He has written a number of books on media and politics. He's currently Professor of Political Communication and the Head of the School of Communications at Dublin City University. He's written as I say, many books in Irish politics. And he is also the current chair of the Arts Council. So who better to write a book about the relationship between artists and the leaders of this country since independence? The book is called "Tishig and the Arts and Kevin is here to discuss it. Hi, Kevin. Afternoon. This isn't a conventional study of Ireland's policy in this area of the arts. It's more um, anecdotal is not quite the word, but personal.
0: Yeah, like I, I'm, as you say, a former political journalist. Um, my academic background is as a political scientist and I research and I lecture and publish on on media and politics but I'm somebody with a deep interest in the arts um, and in in recent years I've been on the board of the the Galway Arts Festival, I've chaired Culture Ireland and as you mentioned uh, I currently chair the Arts Council and I I suppose on those board roles I've always thought about the, the how politicians are represented by artists uh, and how they engage with the arts. And I've a you know obviously a lot of engagement uh, as chair uh, of the Arts Council with the political system. And it got me thinking in terms of that, that representation. Um, and then last summer, I started to pull together material in terms of, you know, from 1922, thinking in terms of the centenary of the state uh, and how the arts has been represented. So the book is not, it's a political scientist who has a deep interest in the arts um, they're the two hats. It's not a book about arts policy or a history, of the Arts Council, but it's a chance to maybe look through a different lens at how artists have represented people from W.T. Cosgrave onwards and how those political leaders, our heads of government, the, the, the principal politicians uh, over the last um, number of decades, how they've engaged with the arts and with individual artists. So it was I suppose you pulling together material from a number of different sources, but You know, looking at it from the vantage point of somebody and writing it from the vantage point of somebody who, uh, I suppose, understands and appreciates and has a deep interest in the political system, as well as the arts.
1: So let's go back then all the way 100 years ago to 1922 and the first government in the state and, you know, independence um, had been achieved, the free state had been set up. The The movement which had led to that was not just a political project, it was also a cultural one. So you would have thought that culture would have been quite central to the uh, the vision of the new government, but it's, it's not clear that that was the case.
0: Yeah, and you see references in you know books that will write the history of 1916 and 1922 and that that revolutionary period to the the role of culture and the you know many of the the, the those who who went out and and took on uh, British rule in Ireland uh, were from the arts and or from the worlds of, of words. Like look at Arthur Griffith, who was effectively a journalist. Um, so that you know they were writers and artists. But when the the free state was established and when a new government was put in place. Um, it became an austere place for the arts and the arts was almost forgotten, um, in terms of a public policy. Partly, I suppose, I suspect because a lot of these individuals, it was the, the challenge of creating a state and making sure the state was established and didn't, um, regress and, you know, didn't become a failed entity. And they had so many other issues that, you know, some, um, policy areas got forgotten. But it was also because, you know, Ireland in the 1920s, um, you know, Catholic, Uh, It was a Catholic conservative uh, society. Um, And I suppose that the arts were viewed with a degree of suspicion. Artists were with a degree of suspicion. Now, that that said, the the, the W.T. Cosgrave um, governments from 1922 to 1933, uh, there there are a number of of credits in their favour. I suppose most particularly in relation to a state grant for the the National Theatre, for the Abbey, first in the world. Uh, £500 pounds at the time uh, to, to subsidise uh, the, the Abbey Theatre. But it stands out, you know, this wasn't that arts was at the centre or the core of government policy. Um, and, you know, it was an era in which we see censorship um, legislation been introduced, um, which obviously impacted on the arts and all the different art forms and artists and how they did their business. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's a fair observation to say that the arts was not central in the early years uh, and and certainly the early governments of the the Irish Free State.
1: It's interesting that the funding of the Abbey as the National Theatre was was an international first, because I do wonder, I mean, if we were to compare what Ireland was like in the 20s with other Similar small European countries, I I am not am not knowledgeable enough to know if they if what how the comparison stands. But certainly, a lot of things that we take for granted now in terms of the role of the state in terms of supporting art and artists uh, was not a given then anywhere in the world, except perhaps in Soviet Russia.
0: Yeah, it it wasn't a given, and I suppose even in terms of I mentioned censorship and you know conservative um, societies like Ireland wasn't unique in that regard um but certainly in terms of the treatment of artists and a uh, seeing art um as a job creating art as a job at work that um you know the state had a role in subsidizing and um, because the market wasn't going to provide the resources that um, you know that that view was dominant from the 20s onwards for for many decades it wasn't just in the in the 1920s um and i, I like i, I think as I said, to be fair to to, to Cosgrave, W. T. Cosgrave, and his colleagues, they had immense challenges in that period of establishing a state, uh, putting in, in in place the infrastructure for the new for the new country, um, and the arts wasn't the the, the the singular priority. But there was also allied to that, and I think wrapped around that viewpoint, a suspicion of artists and the art and the arts, um, and that you know feeds its way through in subsequent governments as well, and uh, and right across the political system.
1: Is it in the nature, partly, of these things that that, that many people who work in the arts are on the margins of politics, they're on the margins of society, they may hold views that are not conventional or mainstream, all the kind of stuff that that the establishment, as represented in this case by the government, um, tend not to be too keen on?
0: All the more reason, though, I think, for a democratic society to to assist and uh, preserve those viewpoints and ensure that those voices are heard. But, yeah, you're entirely correct. The challenging of the establishment and Ireland in the the 20s, the 30s and onwards, you know, the establishment dominated. It was was a uh, Catholic-orientated society. It was a conservative society. And those who had different lifestyles, those who had different viewpoints, uh, and particularly, you know, artists um, stood apart from that dominant society. Uh, and therefore, the, you know, I suppose, in a sense, you know, those who were in the establishment and wanted to control that society and did control that society would have liked those voices to be marginalised. And through censorship legislation, through the support or the absence of support for the arts, uh, there was an attempt, I think, to to, to marginalise, um, like, this, the you know, Ireland wasn't, and the history of Ireland and the arts in that in those uh, early decades is not uh, a particularly positive or um story um, and the the state's treatment of the arts is not as positive story
1: so moving on from Cosgrave, who in terms of his depiction in Irish cultural production novels, plays, paintings, seems a rather opaque or even gray figure he's he's replaced by by de Valera, who is a much Stronger presence in the, on the cultural landscape, even if he in many ways continues the same policies towards arts and culture. He arouses stronger emotions, I think it's fair to say. And therefore he figures more in the art and literature of the day.
0: And also his longevity ensures, because like, you know, the, the devil era, who comes in in 32 as as Taoiseach, retires in the late 50s uh, uh, from national political life in terms of party politics and goes to the Arras and serves two terms as president and is there until 1973. So he's a dominant figure across um, Irish party politics and political life for all of those decades. So I suppose it's understandable that artists would have more engagement and more interest in De Valera than uh, many of the other f- um, former heads of government. But right from the get-go, he's there in the works. Like if you look at Kate O'Brien, uh, the Limerick-born novelist uh, who suffered at the hands of the censorship regime in the 1930s, um, you know she, she, I suppose, retorts and injects De Valera into her novel Pray for the Wanderer, uh, where he's described by like, one of the characters as a dictator. And... The backdrop to this is a this, the, the principal character is a is a writer who's come home after many years uh, to Ireland from London. Uh, one of his novels has been banned, so he, he, the story mirrors Kate O'Brien herself in terms of suffering at the hands of the, the censorship regime. Um, and you know there, there are discussions among family members about the embarrassment of having somebody whose work has been uh, banned um, for being deemed to be indecent. Um, and the backdrop to those conversations and to that visit by the principal character is the referendum on the nineteen thirty-seven constitution. Um and you get a sense, you know, from Kate O'Brien, and it's Debates that raged many for many decades, particularly in the eighties and the nineties, and more recently in relation to the role of women in Irish society, the role of the church—they're there in *Pray for the Wanderer*, Kate O'Brien's uh, novel, and Devilera's name-checked and referenced. So, even in the thirties, you know there were artists and writers who were um, picking up on Devilleira as, as a dominant figure and challenging his worldview, uh, his his ambition for and his vision for the Irish state. Um, and yeah, and then he, you know, we have wonderful works of, of visual art where he appears. Um, and then we have, you know, more uh, in recent times, Arthur Reardon, uh, who would be known to some people through the, uh, R- the RT program Nighthawks. Um, and, you know, Dev, and, uh, and uh, the character MC Dev, which pokes significant satirical fun. Um, but, you know, with a very strong message in relation to the type of society and challenging uh, de Valera's view for Ireland. Um, So, yeah, I think longevity means that he's of interest and has been of interest uh, to artists over many, many years in different art forms.
1: Yeah, he becomes a, he becomes a symbol or, or even a proxy, although he's more than a proxy, isn't he? Because he wielded such, such influence for, for such a long time for everything that a lot of artists thought was wrong with Ireland, whether it be Kate O'Brien's censorship in the 1930s or the, the kind of the dead hand of church and state lingering on into the 80s and the 90s or, I mean, that's what informs I would think Neil Jordan's um, portrait of of De Valera in in his film Michael Collins more than his concern with what actually happened during the War of Independence and Civil War.
0: Yeah, and like even you know artists or writers like Neil Jordan, you talk about him as a filmmaker, but he's uh, a gorgeous short story in his first collection, which is set around um, De Valera's funeral and uh, De Valera's first coming through. Um, Dublin city centre and Neil Jordan's two characters, a man and a woman, uh, two lovers of different age group, one you know who remembers De Valera uh, through their childhood, the other for whom he was a distant figure in the Auris. Uh, and you get a real sense of Ireland in the 1970s from Neil Jordan's story. Our, our president Michael D Higgins, you know, one of his uh, collections of poetry has written about from the vantage point of his own father um, being. Um, a patient um, in the, the 1960s and access to healthcare, and again rattles the cage of De Valera's Ireland. Ireland. Uh, and I mentioned Arthur Reardon and you know, the, the, the Rough Magic uh, production uh, and then the Nighthawks work in relation to De Valera. Like the, Even just the opening, there's a, one of the uh, the pieces that Reardon contributes to um, Nighthawks is called Cave Mila Falter Bitch. Uh, and it, you know, it takes up, it brings in you know the, the constitutional articles in De Valera's constitution uh, in relation to women's place in the home, divorce, um, and the 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 uh, amendment uh, from 1984 to outlaw abortion by giving equal rights to the 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 unborn and the mother. And it's, it's probably the, the to my mind, it's a very strong, and apt artistic response to the age of De Valera. Like even if I could just even read you the opening. Um it was, it was this paragraph I was going to say, but stanza to, to the piece. I met a woman on the campaign trail who said my laws were tough on the female, making her a second class citizen. I said, That's right, you've got it in one. You're in Ireland. I thought you knew. Well, women, have I got news for you? I'm going to show you what's what and which is which. Cade me fortune, bitch. And it goes on with very strong uh, description of the Ireland you know, those moral debates of the 80s and uh, the 1980s in relation to the constitutional referendums, which the backdrop was the 1937 constitution and de Valera's Ireland. So he, he his career spanned all those years from the, you know, the 1932 uh, to 73, but the ethos and values of the de Valera's Ireland reached into the 80s and the 90s and even more recent years. And artists have responded to that in different ways.
1: Yeah, it strikes me listening to Kate Mealfall Bitch that that De Valera was uh, was quite justified and right when he expressed deep worry about the advent of RTE and what it might mean for the for the state which he'd played so much to uh, to to set up in the first place did I mean did De Valera himself have any display any great interest in in novels or literature or painting or cinema
0: no um it's interesting in terms of there's a story in what his son Terry De Valera, wrote a memoir where he talks about his, his father, Eamon de Valera, and, and his mother, Sinead de Valera, who was uh, a writer of um, children's books. So de Valera was exposed to the arts, um, to family members, and um, and so he tread the boards as an amateur when he was a teacher, uh, in, uh, Blackrock College. Uh, he actually uh, on an Abbey production on a Sunday night, uh, to which the Irish Times gave him a very poor review. Uh, and when he, uh, was at the opening, when they were laying the foundation stone for the new Abbey in the, the 1960s when he was president, uh, he was reminded of the fact that I think it was his booming voice that the reviewer in the Irish Times Back in the um, before the, the he became a full time politician, uh, found fault with for his delivery. He, he didn't see even though that you know he's he, he was exposed to artists and the arts. Um, his son's memoir is quite interesting in terms of he talks about De Valera uh, coming to the to to the, his school uh, to award prizes and um, there was always acknowledgement um, of you know his his subjects, but the arts wasn't um, something of grace. Uh, interest.
1: Math- mathematics was his love, wasn't it? Mathematics was his love.
0: In later years, like Ed, um, he, he wasn't seen, you know, except for official occasions when you know, the invite might have got went out through official sources. But he, even in retirement, he wasn't somebody who turned up at artistic events or, you know, when he turned when he attended the Abbey or the Gate or um, it was uh, for ceremonial reasons because it was an expectation that the Taoiseach or the President would be there. But he never showed uh, a great love for for. For for novels or for the um, or for plays or for visual arts.
1: So um, post war the world around Ireland has changed enormously. Ireland perhaps hasn't changed so much. It continues along the same line for some time. Although there are some changes of government. John A. Costello leads a uh, leads a couple of inter- uh, of of coalition governments, and it's it's during that period that you see the first stirrings of forms of direct state support from the arts, the setting up of an arts council. It was a model which would have been familiar. It had already happened in the in the United Kingdom. The most notable thing that I see in your account of it is that it was absolutely, totally underfunded. It was a pathetic amount of money it got.
0: I, I think setting up the arts council and the arts council legislation, which um, the... the, the Cosio's coalition government, when it came in forty-eight, took up legislation that was sitting there under the previous uh, Fianna Fáil government. And de Valera hadn't given it priority, notwithstanding the fact that Paddy Little, one of his ministers, who became the first director of the Arts Council, was pushing for it. Um, I think the, the the fact that that legislation was put through in 51, first meeting of the Arts Council, uh, the, the board of the Arts Council it was in January of 1952. It was important If, if it's most, the most important fact of it was just the creation of the Arts Council, the fact that it was there. And I think its biggest achievement in its first 10, 15 years was staying there because it was starved of resources, as you quite uh, correctly um, observed. And it's interesting, a reading of the annual reports of the Arts Councils, Arts Council reports through the 1950s and into the 1960s, they're like single transferable introductions. we need more money, we'd love to do more things, we'd love to fulfil our mandate but we don't have the resources could we please have higher state um uh, support which wasn't forthcoming and even if you compare the funding that the Irish state in the 1950s was uh, allocating to the arts, to that which has been spent in Northern Ireland uh, Northern Ireland um, per capita was spending more on the arts than uh, the the Irish state. John A- Costello, as you say, um, was Taoiseach on two separate occasions in that period. Um, He had a different, like, compared to um, W.T. Cosgrave and Eamon de Valera, he had a personal interest in the arts. um, But he found the same type of resistance um, that was there previously, a strong resistance in the Department of Finance, because they viewed uh, the arts as a non-essential service, And that was the quote, the descriptive term, a non-essential service uh, and a form of entertainment. And money wasn't available. Now, you know, that's a a way of looking at the world. I would look at the world in terms of when you're down on your knees, you should be spending on the arts, because that's one of the ways of bringing an economy and a society upwards. Uh, It's not you you wait until you have the money and um, artistic and cultural matters uh, shouldn't have to wait. Costello agitated. He was the Taoiseach and he agitated for more money for the Arts Council. Um, and he was turned down by the Mandarins uh, and his Minister of Finance. Uh, and there's a remarkable series of letters between Costello and uh, the, the, the Minister of Finance where Costello actually says, "When he, you know, he's looked for an increase for the Arts Council from its small budget um, and it's rejected. Um, and he writes to the Minister of Finance and he says, you know, in terms of, well, you know, I won't refer won't take up the, the fact that you've described the arts as a non-essential service um, because it'll only make my blood boil. Um, but even then, this view that the arts was a luxury continues to be in the DNA of the official system. And as you said, the, the budget available to the Arts Council was tiny. Uh, so the ability to impact was minuscule.
1: And there's an element to it as well, which which you describe at various points um, in the book, where uh, Dublin is a much smaller city there. Much, much smaller than uh, than it is now. So it's sort of more intimate, I suppose, in a way. And there is a world of Bohemia and intellectuals and artistic types who are generally pretty bedraggled and pretty impoverished and they meet in various watering holes. But they do, because the city's so small, they do bump into the political leaders from time to time. And there are sort of amusing encounters from time to time. And also, I think, quite, quite sad encounters. You'd write about Patrick Kavanagh being chucked out of a statue unveiling because he's so shabby that they reckon he's some kind of a tramp or a vagrant or something.
0: Yeah, and, and like I think the Patrick Kavanagh stories and it, it's, I suppose, a very good representation of where artists, and many artists were in the, na- the 1950s, because there was so the stirring of a new Ireland, like the fifties, Tom Garvin in UCD has written about the, uh, the you know, the nineteen fifties. It wasn't all bleak, even though it was a depressed economic time, culturally quite conservative and restrictive. But there were the seeds and the, the germs. Uh, we're beginning to see some degree of opening up, and there is a, 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 a um, an active art scene. And Patrick Cavanagh was one of those individuals, a leading poet, um, but he was broke um look at you know he, he was doing some journalism um and there's you know he he was in contact with um John A Costello and um and the, the two men were writing to each other uh, and Costello was you know, just explaining, or sorry Kavanaugh was explaining how impossible his financial situation had become um and even suggested options to the Taoiseach, to John A Costello in writing um that you know could he get a grant from the Arts Council or could he get some work with Radio Aaron? Um, or would there be any chance of a job in the publicity department of Erlingus? Um so you know the man was 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 desperate uh, for work and for, for cash. And he wasn't alone in, in that guise. And it's quite interesting with Kavanaugh, the state subsequently bought, you know, his 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 library, his archives, um, on a, you know when when he had passed, um, and he got more money from the state. Um, after he died than he did you know when he was living as a poet uh, in, in in Dublin. Um, so you know that that's the the real manifestation of the absence of state support and um, that somebody who was one of our leading poets uh, and somebody who we now Revere um you know lived a life of poverty poverty.
1: Um, I want to come in a minute to the Taoiseach who perhaps most overtly proclaimed his love of and support for the arts. Before we do that, I want to tip our own hat to Mammon and we'll take a short break and then we'll be back. Welcome back. I'm talking with Kevin Rafter about his new book, uh, Taoiseach and the Arts. And Kevin, before we get to that Taoiseach I mentioned just before the break, we should mention that Sean Lamas intervened between uh, De Valera and uh, Jack Lynch and then Charles Haughey, Again, a very significant figure in terms of the economic um, changes uh, in the state, but not so much in relation to culture.
0: No, uh, I, I um Lamas was a man who was much more comfortable uh, you know with with horses and uh, playing cards than uh, going to a gallery or um, going to see a play in a theater. Um, and he very much was of the, the, the world view that the the arts would have to wait in the queue uh, and economic prosperity would have to increase. Before resources would become available. Uh, and he, w- he was lobbied very hard by the Arts Council and some of his colleagues and associates were appointed to the Arts Council. And we do see an increase in uh, resources to the, uh, the Arts Council in that period, but still very tiny money. Lamas, Le- this wasn't his world and it wasn't a priority. And it, it's one of the interesting vantage points about when we talk about Whitaker and Lamas and opening up and industrialization and modernization, it, it is very much in the economic space. While Ireland does open up and become, you know, the 60s hit in Ireland in different guises, it's not fueled by Sean Lamass or his view. Um, like, and he, he certainly had a very hostile, um, view of being challenged. Um, and, you know, we see this in relation to the, the creation of the new television service, uh, or TE, as it is now. Uh, and Lamas struggled with the independence that the new television service had and its ability to critique um, politicians uh, and the government of the day. And I think he had a similar type view in relation to to the arts and the challenge and critique that will come from artistic work. Um, So he didn't leave a huge imprint uh, on arts policy from his period as Taoiseach.
1: I think it's interesting that um, through that throughout that period, the um, the Arts Council is led by a Catholic priest, uh, quite a colourful Catholic priest, and a Catholic priest with quite strong artistic opinions himself. Tell me about him.
0: Yeah, um, Father Donald Sullivan was um, a, um, a Jesuit priest uh, who had a deep interest in the visual arts uh, and was appointed um, what is effectively now the, the the director of the of the Arts Council, smaller body obviously than it is today um and he he ran us to his own will through the 1960s um he was a colorful um priestly character um he he had some several female friends he was very fond uh, of whiskey it was said that in one of the hotels in dublin he had his own stock of wine and whiskey um and he was a man about town um and he had a particular view in relation to contemporary art and that's where a lot of the arts council funding uh went in that period and there were like you know artists who challenged him but he had a, a stranglehold on uh, the arts um the the arts council and its funding and its policies through that period
1: and then uh we get the arrival of charles j Hahi, and indeed um this is not when Charles J. Haughey is Taoiseach because he becomes a very significant figure um, earlier on, as soon as he really enters government, but particularly when he becomes Minister for Finance. Because throughout this story so far, there's been a recurring theme of, you know, at some stages, the Taoiseach or another member of the government might express some enthusiasm for investing in the arts a bit more. And it's always the the so-called mandarins in the Department of Finance who go, no, not yet. We We don't have the money. But the this has turned around a little bit under haughey because he's the one who sort of pushes for greater investment in and involvement in the arts for whatever reason, well, probably for a variety of reasons.
0: Yeah, like Charlie haughey as Minister for Finance, we see in the, the, the period in the late uh, 1960s, the Arts Council's budget went from 40,000 Irish pumps, as it was then, um, in 1966 to 60,000 um, in 1968. And haughey as Minister for Finance um approved the, the the increased funding. um I, I think we to to look at Charles Hohey, you need to take a step sidewards and consider the role of Anthony Cronin, a uh, poet uh, critic, longtime contributor to the Irish Times, uh, and part of that bohemian set that we talked about earlier, Patrick Kavanaugh, uh Flan O'Brien and others. um he uh, Anthony Cronin and Charles Hohey were colleagues uh, friends from UCD. Uh, and I think Cronin has a, a hugely important and influential uh, influence, uh, uh, impact on Charles Hoy and introducing him to the arts and to the artists, particularly writers and visual, uh, artists. Um, but oh, he was certainly. Uh, a man who wanted to be associated with the arts and with artists uh, even before he became tishik um he was described as being that the given his level of activity as minister for finance that he was the managing director of the, the cultural economy um and but you know he, he was at every opening if, if, when the, the peacock theatre was opened in dublin uh in the abbey complex in the summer of 1967 the official opening was done by the minister for finance um so he did the honors of uh many many official openings um and he enjoyed the company of artists uh dinners um events um whether it, it, it was for a you know, but did he want to advance the arts or was it for his own Medici style um, you know, his ego was being massaged, you know they're, like in every area you Charles, how he divides opinion.
1: Yeah, I mean, you paint you paint a very rounded picture of him because there is there is vulgarity and there is self aggrandizement and there's a shallowness, but there's also, I suppose, a sort of an energy as well. And you know, to some extent, you know, artists and creative people, you know, they gather around him and they uh, they they are sort of in awe of him or, or entranced by him, uh, and that's not just because he has money to give out, although that's probably part of it.
0: Yeah, I think part of it, like we associate two, like Oh, he had two very significant impacts on uh, arts policy through the, the income tax exemption scheme in the, the late 60s. And the, he was uh, one of those responsible for the foundation of creation of Asona in the early 1980s. Um, so, you know, there to his credit, now there are others who were know, contributed to those, but there is, they're on his legacy. Um, and he certainly had, and it showed and expressed an interest in the arts as a man we know from, you know, the sale of, of his uh, libraries and the sale of art that he had uh, in his house uh, in Concilia, North County, Dublin, that, you know, he was a collector of art. Um, he had many first editions uh, of Novels uh, and collections of poetry by leading names in the Irish uh, literary world. So he, he associated with artists, he enjoyed their company. Um, whether he made beyond the, the, the number of big ticket interventions, whether he, that, that uh, interventions made a significant impact. Like I, I, I it's, it's interesting you say. I made a rounded picture. I, I would have a more jaundiced view of Hawi's contribution, in the sense that really, you know, by the time he left office, as Taoiseach, um, There were he, he over many many years he promised an increase in state support for the arts, and primarily through increased support uh, for the the budget of the arts council. But he never delivered, uh, and even in the late nineteen eighties when he, you know, in an interview with the Irish Times, he talked about increasing the Arts Council budget, but he talked about the other pressures on the, the exchequer. So he was he was still of a mind that was similar to the official world that the arts will wait. Um, he talked. He talked in terms of increased funding. And there are many, as I say, legacy initiatives um, that he can take credit for. But in terms of, you know, the what impacts on the world of artists, in terms of can you get a bursary, that will give you the space to write the or finish the novel. Can you, you know, get a grant that will allow you to buy the equipment to, to, to make that piece of sculpture? Or oh, he didn't deliver in terms of arts, arts budgets
1: I, I suppose he's, um, I mean, you refer to him as a kind of a well, self-consciously as a sort of Medici type figure. He's also, I mean, later in his career, he very much modeled himself on, on François Mitterrand and, and French politicians, but Mitterrand in particular. But even earlier, the relationship with Cronin as a sort of a intellectual, um, kind of ear whisperer beside him all the time, educating him and, uh, and all of that, that. I mean, that, that's a break with, with the past. And, and it does beg the question, you know, that the, the, the Lack of engagement with the arts also bespeaks a certain kind of anti intellectualism at the at the commanding heights of Irish government over many decades, doesn't it? Obviously he didn't fix that, but it he kind of illustrates it in a way because of, of going in a somewhat different direction.
0: Yeah, I I think for, for, for many politicians, the arts was viewed artists were viewed with suspicion. Um and I suppose because they were you know, some artists are, you know, they they have a maverick streak. This the nature of, uh, I suppose, of creating the the piece of genius of art. Um, but they also challenged in a society that conformed to many uh, accepted norms. They, they were the ones that asked the hard questions. They challenged. Um, so therefore, maybe politicians stayed shy of them oh he certainly didn't um like he he liked to be and i think brendan Kennelly used the the phrase you know the high king of ireland um he he, he saw having the the poet at his side you know it, it elevated him um and yeah I and mean, you know you mentioned meter on i think he saw himself as a statesman so therefore the statesman being um fettered by and um Adorned and you know, uh, given the, the the gratitude and love of artists was something which, obviously, it fed his ego, but it also, in his own mind, elevated his standing as a statesman.
1: And he the had he had
0: a statesman, you know, the rounded view of a statesman, just not just the political
1: statesman. Indeed, but he he had a view which I suspect was informed by by Anthony Cronin to some extent of what the arts were and who artists were, and it's something which I think, particularly now, you know, the world has moved on again. People would look back and say that's a very particular and perhaps like quite narrow vision of the poet. The painter, the man nearly always, or 95% of the time, who is the great artistic genius and somehow, you know, somehow makes their mark on the world in that way. And it's, it, it's, it's a view of art that, that leaves out collaboration, that leaves out various other forms that, that work in a different kind of a way. And arguably that leaves out certain kinds of people as well.
0: Yeah, he, he went to heart when he was in his period of disgrace in the early 1970s after the arms trial. Um, you know, he, he was obviously one of his lasting legacies as Minister for Finance uh, had been the income tax exemption scheme, You know, which was seen as far reaching at the time, even though its impact on um, many artists was very limited because to avail of it, you had to have an income. And many artists didn't have an income of a level that allowed them to avail of the income tax exemption scheme. But, oh, he got a lot of credit for that. He was invited or uh, an invite was orchestrated for him to go to Harvard University to give a speech. Uh, he was a backbench um, Fianna Fáil TD at the time, former minister. He went to Harvard and gave this incredibly powerful uh speech uh, when you read it it's written by a by somebody or it's, it's certainly it's it's the work of somebody who understands the life of the poet and i, I to my mind anthony cronin is all over the 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 speech which all he claims credit for uh, i think C- uh, cronin you know was the principal author it shows a remarkable insight into the the, the world of the writer and the, the world of the poet and i think you are right in identifying that, oh, his view of the arts was narrow. And he admitted this, he did an interview with Paddy Wordsworth in the Irish Times, the only major interview that he ever did about the arts, uh, 20 years after that Harvard um, Speech, and he admitted, you know, it was the visual arts and uh, literature writers. Uh, that's where his interests were. So, in terms of maybe experimental art or what you know the Arts Council would be funding today, in terms of street art, spectacle, um, circus, you know, broader definitions, dance, where you know there is a lot of emphasis today. Um, they they were not of his view of the the, the arts. It was very restrictive uh, in terms of he he obviously had a, an enjoyment uh, for, for for art for visual art, uh for painting and some sculpture, um, and then for you know the written word and the word of literature.
1: And maybe it's not surprising then that, you know, that 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 writers and artists, you know, flocked to him to some extent and were happy to sort of to, to pay court to him. Maybe also because um I, I, I recall something which has been, which was said to me by a, by a prominent figure in the arts a, a few years ago. Uh, you may not want to comment on this given your current position and the fact that the Taoiseachship is changing in December. But in a, in a, in a pity way, they said, one thing I know about politics and the arts is Fine Gael are always shite at it. And I really don't have much memory of the introduction of, um, imaginative measures under the Taoiseach ships of either Liam Cosgrave in the 70s or Gareth Fitzgerald in the 80s?
0: Certainly the Cosgrave government, the, the, you know, the, that 73 to 77 government, Liam Cosgrave's government, had introduced the Arts Act. Cosgrave as Taoiseach brought it through the 73 piece of legislation, but he left little impact and had, you know, very little interest. Gareth Fitzgerald was quite clear yet in time. he had in time, he'd have constitutional crusade, Northern Ireland and the economy in the 1980s in his governments. Uh, He appointed a Minister of State with specific responsibility for the arts. And in Gareth Fitzgerald's memoir, he talks about that, you know, that wasn't because it was innovation. It was because he didn't have time for the arts. So the arts wasn't a priority. The the only thing, and I think Gareth Fitzgerald probably doesn't get enough credit um, with the announcement of, of Estona um, in that period, there was a change of government. From, it was announced obviously by the Arts Council and Charles Hawhey. Uh, Gareth Fitzgerald had been briefed about it, but when he comes in as Taoiseach, he continues to push through Estona as an initiative. Um, so, you know, in terms of, the, was there a personal interest? No. Um, but I think in terms of, you know, sometimes when we see change of government and a flagship policy or a pet project from the previous government can be dropped. Um, by the new administration to his credit, Gard Fitzgerald didn't do that. Uh, and it allowed Estona to be established and funded and cre- um, and get up and running. Um, whether, you know, the, the generalization, one party good for the arts, the other bad for the arts. I, I, I'm not a subscriber to that.
1: Well, I think it was one slightly less bad than the other was the point that was being made.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I like, I, and look, we're on relative terms here now. So, you know, um, I, I think from the entire period from 22 to, you know, certainly more recently, the, 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 the arts was has not been a, a significant uh, public policy uh, area. Um, the Department of Finance, um, in its different guises and different leadership at official and political level, you know, very much a break on funding money on uh, the, the, the arts. And no series of politicians really champion it. Like even when we get a Minister for State like Ted Neilan. Uh, and others who fill that role before Michael D comes in in the 1990s, um, you know, th- there really are just a buffer between the the Arts Council and the, and the the Department of Finance. Uh, you know, between letters to say the Arts Council could do with more money, uh, and the Department of Finance saying
1: no. Actually, I want to come back to that thought thought in a sec. But first, just to uh, dispense with 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 Charles, Haye, you you write about the various artistic reactions to him, particularly the, I suppose, the more negative ones, which tended to come safely after he had uh, retired from public life uh, for um, for the most part. So he is a kind of a. A little bit like De Valera, except in a somewhat different way. I think he does sort of tire over the the political landscape and to some extent the cultural one. And you write about all these, you know, various plays like Sebastian Barry's Hinterland and and various other ones too, um, which which got a kind of mixed reception. I think it's fair to it's fair to say. Um, you also write about the fact that in the 80s and the 90s, some critics, including, I think, Fintan O'Toole, were critical of the fact that Irish artists weren't more engaged politically with the with the issues of the day. And there was a there was a debate about that. I mean, I wonder what you think about that in retrospect, or indeed think about it now, because there's an argument as well, is that it, it it's not necessarily the function of art, or it doesn't necessarily make for good art if it kind of turns itself into quasi-journalism.
0: No, but if you look at the work of, say, in the UK, people like David Hare or James Morgan, fantastic playwright, Writing about contemporary issues, um, Peter Morgan's. They actually, I was, I picked it off the bookshelf here at home uh, last night, when they announced that Queen Elizabeth had died, uh, the audience, that play, which is about you know how the Queen uh, interacts with all her prime ministers, uh, and the version I saw, I saw it on stage in London, and it was up as far as David Cameron, but it captured moments of political engagement and particular particular debates. Uh, I, I, I think, look, we, we we don't prescribe to artists what they Hmm. should produce in terms of making great art um but i do think there is a a responsibility and you would we would hope to see art that challenges not just the state but politics and politicians and you know we have in more recent times seen uh work um like you mentioned Sebastian Barry's Hinterland uh and i have to say I, i saw that on the abbey and i was aware of the um the, the controversy at the time. I reread it uh, in the, the last year. Um it does capture aspects of Charles Hohey's ego, the, the 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 desire for power, the need for 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 money. Um in different ways Marina Carr's Ariel um or Tom McIntyre's only an apple capture different aspects of Hohey as a as a politician. And then, you know, in different ways, you've seen, you know, Colin Murphy's Hoagie um, Gregory. I personally, I think it's really important to see that world on the stage, that it's not just left to the journalists to tell the day to day. And it's great to see license been taken to bring us into rooms that maybe journalists don't necessarily get to. Uh, and I, I, I enjoy reading political, particularly political plays. Um, you know, where big ticket items can be challenged in a, and, uh, in a fictional way, it doesn't always have to be on the, the main stage of the Abbey, the gate or the the big theatre. Um, but like, you could know, take Colin Murphy's the uh, the play I mentioned, Haji Gregory, which took us back into 1982 and the how that uh, minority funeral. Uh, government was created with the support of Tony Gregory and uh, the Workers' Party. I, I think it's really important that, you know, we're, we're exploring some of those themes and what comes out of those themes. And Colin Murphy's also done it with Bailed Out and, and Guaranteed, where, again, as we're living through the, the post-2008 financial crisis, artists are engaging and challenging uh, and representing, in, in maybe in fictionalised way, but trying to get at the heart of, you know, what went wrong where are we as a society? And I think if you're to ask that question, where are are we as a society, and ignore the political world, I think we'd be at, we'd be at a loss. You, to be honest.
1: So, as you mentioned, there is a. Uh, an important change in 1993 when for the first time uh, a full uh, cabinet government ministership is created michael d higgins is the first minister for uh for arts and and that has remained so ever since although the name seems to change every two years or so and bits are added on and bits are added off but cultural art culture and arts are at the center of that ministership do i understand from what you were saying there earlier that that the dynamic is still the same though that that the relationship is between the arts and the centre as represented by the Departments of Taoiseach and Finance. Well,
0: to, to look, the, there is a line department, obviously, to which the, the Arts Council uh, is, is under, you know, has a relationship, that's the Department of the Arts. And as you say, since ninety that's been in place, although in different guises. Um, but within the governmental system, um the department of Finance and the Department of Taoiseach are usually important. Um, so the Arts Council may have a certain view, and the Department of Arts may have a certain view, but it's it's really important to have those two big powerful departments uh on site as well, or that the Taoiseach of the day and the Minister of the Finance of the day see the value uh in spending money on the arts. So I, I think in terms of if you silo off uh government departments and say, right, the relationship is great with the department of arts. It, that's not sufficient in order to make the case and influence in terms of uh, the, the measures that are required to advance arts policy and the the, the budget of the Arts Council to, to allow artists to function and make work.
1: There is There is a truth though, isn't there, which is that politicians like the arts for certain things. It's very good when they're going on foreign trips to speak to their equivalents overseas. It's very good when they're sort of pumping up the country in some kind of a fist-pumping kind of a way. It's kind of good for their image. They think of it uh, uh, perhaps as something, you know, soft that just gives added luster. And I've sort of seen that myself. Um, I mean, you referred to Taoiseachs and Ministers for Finance there was an awful lot of hoo-ha about the Creative Ireland project which was running under the, the the previous government and I attended quite glam presentations with lots of expensive videos and Pascal Donahue and Leo Varadkar. If they weren't fist bumping, they were almost fist bumping anyway. And uh forgive me for being a little bit cynical about uh about that. What I mean, what do you think of that kind of, you know, you know? national self-boosting part of the relationship between government and the arts.
0: Yeah, and cultural diplomacy or, you know, if you want to use another word, uh, propaganda, but in terms of cultural diplomacy has been there since 1922. It's not unique to the Irish state. Um, The... Like the in the nineteen thirties, you know, the the, the government um, and De Valera's government had a barney with W. B. Yeats and the Abbey about the representation of Ireland on the stage when they were touring in the United States, uh, and that what, what, the, what the plays they were putting on weren't, weren't necessarily those that represented the type of image that De Valera and his colleagues wanted for Ireland. Um, the state has, you know, um, always spent money putting forward the best representation of Ireland, and one of our great attributes is the arts. Um, but, you know, I, I look, governments do that. That's fine. But I, I suppose my issue with that would be that we didn't see the spending then domestically to allow artists to continue on. So it's all very well handing over a bowl of shamrock or, you know, a bound copy of Yeats' poems or Ivan Boland's poems. Uh, When artists are struggling, or the arts council doesn't have the money to give out bursaries, Uh, and I think there there was a a long time disconnect. Um, I said, "Look, isn't it brilliant that we have such wonderful works of art that can be quoted um, and that can be shown internationally? Cultural diplomacy, you know, it's done. It happens. You know, you you can look at it with a jaundiced view and a a cynical eye, um, but if that's happening alongside..." where there's no funding. And that's the problem. And I think that, that would have been what would one of the issues that I would have had.
1: And and that's we 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 saw that during Creative Ireland. I mean I personally saw musicians who expressed how pissed off they were that they were being used essentially for for advertising for the state and then were going home to their minimum wage jobs or below minimum wage jobs.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think that's the the issue for the I suppose is the development agency for the arts, that the arts council uh, is in that space to, to to make the case for increased funding for the arts, uh, and I suppose we're you know we're we're moving away a little bit from the book now, but it, it is uh, I think it's it's look it's it, that will always happen, and we won't be able to stop it um, in terms of the use of arts the the you know a speech that needs to be peppered out with quotations you know Sahini or Yates um, or Ivan Boland get uh, cited and quoted, um, but as you quite rightly identify you know, alongside that, you need to ensure then that particularly a younger generation of artists, the supports are in place, particularly where this is not you know, if, if we're this, this is not uh, a, a sector where there are huge resources, and most artists don't earn uh, huge, huge um, annual incomes. So the importance of state subvention is really, really important, um, so that we have that 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 money to to in order, I was it to, to prop up, but to support an infrastructure that allows art to be created. Um, and I think if you if you want to go out and use and uh, art um, art to sell Ireland. It's really important then that you're supporting art, uh, in terms of through the arts council and through the local authorities.
1: So I suppose, you know, the modern Irish state, you know, does support culture in a number of of different ways, including direct subventions to cultural institutions like um like, like the National Gallery and the National Museum, including things like Astana, which you mentioned, including the uh the, the new project which is just Now, just this week got underway providing uh, a basic income for 2000 artists on a pilot basis for the next, uh, for the next three years or so. But I, but I think you'd say uh, rightly that, that the single most important support for artists comes through the Arts Council as the, as the main state agency uh, providing support for creative artists. there has actually been a really significant increase in the council's budget um and that was after you know a long decade of decline from from the from the financial crisis onwards but over the course of the pandemic the i think it's right in saying the subvention has increased by from about 77 million to about 130 million over the case, over the course of of two or three years and um, was that emergency money or do you anticipate that, that will continue or or maybe even be increased in the budget in a couple of weeks' time.
0: Yeah, when I t- when I was appointed chair of the arts council in the summer of twenty nineteen, so it's pre-pandemic, um, and I've been chair through the pandemic longer in its COVID period than pre-COVID, uh, the budget in the summer of 2019 was 75 million. Uh today it's 130 million. It's been 130 million now for two years. Uh, and my expectation will be that it will be a minimum of 130 million going into 2023. Um, I, I see that, uh, increase and they like, you know, it was a former Taoiseach who I, uh, interviewed Char, who we were talking about earlier, Charles Hawley. Uh, when I interviewed him after he retired, I asked him about his involvement in the Northern Ireland peace process and he waved his hand at me and he said, look, success is many mothers and fathers. Uh, in, in relation to the increase in the Arts Council's budget, success is many, Um, mothers and fathers. Many um, people in the organisations played a role. Um, But I see that as honouring pledges that were made before the pandemic uh, in relation to increasing uh, support for the arts. Uh, And in fairness to all sides in Leinster House that I've been involved in uh, discussions with over the last three years, government and opposition, uh, there is support for that budget level. The three party leaders in the current coalition um Via Bradkar, Beha Martin and Eamon and Ryan, uh have been hugely supportive of the the, the council and the increase in, in budget. So I see that as locked in you. that's uh, it's 130 million.
1: even though even though some of those increases were presented at the time when they were announced as being an emergency response to an emergency situation.
0: Yeah, like the the money didn't all come in one tranche. So we started um the Arts Council started 2020 uh with a budget of 80 million. Um a, there was an extra 25 in the first phase of COVID, and then in the summer, um, going into budget uh, in that autumn for for, for 2021. Uh, the, the budget was increased to £130 million. Uh, So it, it's come in different, uh, different stages. Um, and it has been used, obviously, to get the arts through the crisis. And the recovery is still ongoing. And it's still very difficult for many artists and many arts organisations with the uncertainty around the stop-start nature uh, of COVID. So the crisis isn't over. Um, but I, I see the commitment um, and, and the delivery Uh, from the the current government as an ongoing commitment to the Arts Council in relation to supporting and developing
1: the arts. Teeshag and the Arts by Kevin Rafter is published by Martello. Uh, Kevin, thanks very much indeed for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. We're going to be back very soon indeed, but until the next time, goodbye and thanks for listening.